Welcome to another episode of Rewired Podcast. I'm Bailey. And I'm Kelly. And today we're talking about fake news, which is basically the entirety of season five of The Wire. Yeah, and we want to ask the question, what is up with season five? Because it is widely regarded as the worst season. Yeah, like it was bad. It was bad. And like I hated McNulty by the end of it. Me too, and it's a shame because I was pulling for McNulty the whole time. Yeah. So season five opens with us seeing that McNulty is back to the old McNulty. Yeah, he's heavy drinking, he's carousing with women, and it all stems from the fact that the police department has gotten these cuts in funding. So there's no overtime being paid out, there's no um, police vehicles available, and also the major crimes detail gets shut down. Exactly. And actually, a lot of this is foreshadowed in uh, season one when I, I can't, it was just some random cop in that season says, you know, I'd give up all my overtime to have someone run this police department like a real police department. And of course, we get to season five and sure enough, the overtime slips have been cut. And Carcetti has been presented as kind of the great white hope for Baltimore. Um, but he, and he ran on crime, and here he is cutting the overtime, trying to fix education, I believe. Yeah, and it's because the schools happened in season four, and mm-hmm. then crime gets pushed to back burner. Yeah. So even though season five was, in my opinion, kind of horrible, it's relevant now. It is relevant. And I now see it as relevant just in the last year, year and a half because of this national conversation that's happening around fake news, which you can't go on Twitter or go on CNN or go on any news site and not hear about fake news. Literature has always had, I guess, a role in political commentary, though. Yeah, and it it's funny because sometimes there are books that were written 20 or 30 years prior and they seem to be predictive in some way or have the capacity to envision circumstances which eventually come about. Mm -hmm. And I suppose with the Donald Trump election, it was sales of 1984, George Orwell's 1984, that spiked on Amazon and in chapters and such, right? Yep, 1984 and also The Handmaid's Tale uh, by Margaret Atwood. And it's a little depressing that these are all dystopian uh, novels. Yeah, definitely <laughs> predicting a very dark future. Uh, I mean, yeah, sometimes with The Handmaid's Tale, hearing especially the women's health news coming out of the U.S., I'm like, wow. Yeah, and I mean, it's kind of interesting when you think about literature that has been predictive of something that would happen in the future. It's like, well, was that literature written in response to existing circumstances that were escalating or did the literature come before the circumstance in an almost Nostradamus style? Mm-hmm. Um, just something interesting to think about. That but, is interesting. Um, with The Wire, season five, I think there were seeds of some of this stuff happening in the late 90s and early 2000s that mm. uh, gave way to this fake news plot that we see. Well, and I mean, generally these dystopic themes are meant to be warnings, Right, like we're meant yeah. to, we're meant to learn a lesson and not actually then recreate it ten years or thirty years or forty years down the line. Yes, and I think we can definitely agree that season five of The Wire was something of a warning. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's get into season five. 
So season five opens with this scene of Landsman and Bunk Moreland interrogating a young man and they use a photocopier as um, kind of a pretend lie detector test. Right, which actually uh, David Simon wrote about in his novel. Well, it was not his novel, it's true crime report, Homicide. Yes. So this has actually happened by the Baltimore Police Department. Exactly. And I didn't know that when I first watched this scene. And I thought, oh, this is so over the top. It's so ridiculous. That would never happen. Mm-hmm. But it did happen. And what's important about that scene, I think, is that at the end, um, Bank Moreland says, the bigger the lie, the more they believe. And that's mm-hmm. that's the opening of season five. So I think we're kind of invited to see season five as a commentary on what are the big lies? Why do we believe them? Mm-hmm. Especially because the scene after that, McNulty's on the rooftop with some other cop doing surveillance and the cop says, you know, I heard a couple years ago that you were on this vice case and uh, you got blowed by somebody in the whorehouse. And McNulty says, well... Do you believe everything you read? Right. Which, again, inviting us to look at season five in terms of deception, I think. Well, and I mean, that's an interesting thing, too, because, of course, he did. That season two when they do the the prostitution ring bust. and Yeah, the port case. Yeah, McNulty was supposed to say uh, tally-ho or or what was it? I think it was tally-ho. Yeah, something like that. Top Spot on. Spot Spot on, on, right. Spot on. Uh, He was supposed to say spot on before it got that far, but, of course, he... He didn't. So anyway, but yeah, so I think you're right. We're we're invited to question what we're told and how we believe it. Yeah. So season five is when we get introduced to the staff of the Baltimore Sun. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the first time the media is kind of brought into the Wire universe. So the main players of the Baltimore Sun are Gus, who's the city assignments editor, Scott Tamilton, who is the city assignments reporter Alma Gutierrez who's also a city assignments reporter and then there's kind of the upper level editorial staff so the managing editor and the executive editor right and the Baltimore Sun is in trouble yeah financially it's they're in super trouble and there's all these layoffs happening and it's kind of funny because there's a scene where the executive editor is saying that there's just no more advertising dollars, mm-hmm. um, people aren't buying newspapers anymore, and this was in, I guess, 2006, 2007, and so that's only gotten significantly worse in the last 10 years. Right. Like, at that time, I mean, the internet was there and people were on the internet, but I don't think people were, you know, getting their news from the internet as much as they are now. Right, and I I think this was pre, you know, everyone having smartphones or iPads to read newspapers through apps. That that wasn't really uh, happening quite yet. So, uh, the Season 5 newspaper is commenting on the decline of print journalism and everyone chasing, okay, what headlines are going to get us the biggest readership? We need these dollars. Right, which I, yeah, is still happening now. Still happening. Let's talk about Scott Templeton. I also hated him. I hated him too. I despise him. Yeah, he's definitely up there on the most hated characters list. Yeah, we have talked about unlikable characters, and he is extremely unlikable. Yeah, and I I think he's really contrasted with 
Alma, who is obviously really does care about print journalism. We see when she finally gets her first cover, she gets up at like, you know, 4 a.m. and she's waiting for them to drop off the first Baltimore Suns and she's so excited. I know, and her piece got moved to the, you know, the middle third page or something. So that's kind of sad when that happens. Yeah. And isn't it because Scott has a made up article that bumps her piece or is that not? Um, I think you're right. I think it's his made up baseball story that gets the cover. Right. And that's his first lie. That's his first lie. Um, and I think we have to comment on Templeton's name, Templeton, the rat from Charlotte's web. That's an easy association. So, um, Scott Templeton kind of rat like sneaky, not trustworthy. And then he's also contrasted with Gus, who's the City Assignments editor, who is the one who consistently says, Scott, what are your sources? I'm not saying you didn't make this, but mm-hmm. I need to know where it came from. He's kind of a stronghold of like the last vestiges of, you know, excellence in print journalism or something like mm-hmm. that. And I mean, he's not riding Gus because he doesn't like him. Riding Scott, you mean. Or, so, yeah, sorry, riding Scott because he doesn't like him. He's he's doing due diligence, which, I mean, you've worked as a fact checker in print media. So I have. Like, is that what you do? I've worked in newspapers and magazines, and the fact checking process is ruthless. Mm-hmm. I used to have nightmares about it. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so there's... There's nothing wrong with the editor saying, I need your sources. And if the sources can't be provided, the piece wouldn't get printed. That's my major disagreement with season five is that I feel like this is not very realistic because Mm. if it can't be fact-checked, it just wouldn't wouldn't hold up, especially in the wake of um, the whole Stephen Glass controversy at the New Republic. Well, I don't know what that is. So if anyone has seen the movie Shattered Glass, it's about this young journalist Stephen Glass he was 25 he worked at the New Republic and he ended up making up an enormous story about a teenage computer hacker made it up so much that he like was setting up fake websites and making up fake notes in his notepad and he kind of had a bit of a loophole in the fact-checking process in that he would say, well, just check my notes. It's in my notes. Hmm. But eventually he got found out. And then I think after that, fact-checking became a lot more rigorous. Holy, that's really intense. Yeah. Um, and well, and I mean, thinking about how you said the piece wouldn't get printed, I think Gus absolutely tries to prevent a lot of these pieces from going to print because he, he doesn't. He isn't able to do his due diligence with the fact-checking. But that senior editor guy is pushing things and seems to be more on Scott's side. Yeah, and he's pushing things because he says this is going to get people reading and that's what they want is money. And what's kind of interesting is that simultaneously, McNulty starts making up his own sort of fake news with this fake serial killer also trying to get more money for his institution. Yeah. I think Scott Templeton's motivation is more selfish. He just mm-hmm. wants to rise in the ranks of uh, the newspaper. For the accolades. Yeah, but then McNulty wants money for his, his department. Right, and so that's when he starts making up a very sensational case. And actually, he starts kind of small, and Freeman is the one that says, no, no, 
we've if we're gonna do this we got to do it big yeah we're gonna put bite marks on the body that's freeman's idea yeah when mcnulty starts this case i mean he kind of stumbled it's almost like a crime of opportunity in a way in that he finds this dead body it's a it's a um vagrant a vagrant a john doe so he figures there's no harm and he you know he he does a very sort of casual job of the first body and it's worth pointing out that mcnulty didn't even want to go on this case he says i'm hungover Mm -hmm. and he has the ice pack on his head and lansman says you're going and then he's getting drunk at the scene drinking Jameson out of his trunk right and Bunk Moreland says don't you think it's a little early for that and I think this is the beginning of the rift between Bunk and McNulty especially when McNulty starts messing around with the body yeah so he starts messing around with the body to make it look like there's been a struggle rather than just like you know a, a heart attack or OD or whatever um, and we know that McNulty has this good uh, relationship with the medical examiner, too. So, they've, you know, McNulty's able to press him a little bit as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, but what, yeah, you're, and you're right. And there does become a deep rift between Bunk and McNulty in the beginning of this. And Bunk actually calls in Freeman asking him to talk some sense into McNulty, but Freeman is into it. Yeah, and... So then they start this campaign of fabricating serial murders linked together with this red ribbon around the wrist. Yeah. So Scott Templeton then thinks to himself, okay, I want in on this. Gus, editor, sends him out to get react quotes from the homeless. And Scott Templeton thinks that he's too good to go get react quotes. Yeah, he definitely pushes back. So then what he does is he makes up this phone call, pretends that he got called by the supposed serial killer on his cell phone. And it leads to this hilarious, but also sad, sad hilarious, exchange between McNulty and the editorial board where they're both feeding into each other's lies. So let's watch that scene. Yeah. He said he wanted people to know there'd be 12 bodies before he's finished. He said, quote, I came to take 12. I said, uh, what happens after 12? He said, quote, I go somewhere else, unquote. Uh, I asked him about the bite marks. He said that they wanted him to bite, that they asked for that. He complained that the article made him sound like a pervert. Um, I asked him if he was angry at the men. He hung up. He called you on your cell phone? Why didn't he call the paper? I was all over the city yesterday handing my cards out to homeless men. He probably got the number from a card. Shit, I might have handed him a card. I think this is the guy. I mean, Detective, a chill ran down my back. Yeah, but there's no way to know. I mean, if it's some other nut, we're going to look like fools if we run any of this in print. Your cell phone caught the number. He dialed you. Yeah, I dialed it back. Uh, payphone on South Hanover near West Street. Right. What did he sound like? What do you mean? Well, you talk to people for a living. Did he sound black, white, younger, older, high-pitched voice or low? Uh, he sounded to me like a white guy. Not a deep voice, but calm, almost monotone. He sounded older, I would say 40s. Not a really young guy. Can I have your notebook? Whoa, whoa, you can have his notes. This isn't a confidential source. We'll invoke the Maryland Shield Law, but uh, I'll type up a copy and give them to you. But the actual document is property of the Baltimore Sun. So type it up, like now. So you're saying this could be the killer? Can we talk off the record? The homicide unit received a phone call this morning 
from a payphone from the same neighborhood. And based on Scott's voice description and the use of the number 12, <clears throat> well, let's just say we need to find whoever it was made both those calls. He made another call? Detective, as a newsman, I'm inclined to include these details in our coverage if there's a credible chance the killer was really in contact with our reporter. Would doing so have any negative effect on your investigation? Actually, these calls are our best means of finding this guy. Every call he makes, every word he says to you and to us, can only provide information. If we do run a story... Oh, but you can't say he's contacted the police. You can't print that part of it under any circumstances. Okay, then how do we characterize what uh, police think about this call to Scott? You can say that we're uh, taking it seriously. The hilarious part of that is when McNulty says, well, he called us too, and because we listened to the clip, not everybody could see Templeton's face, but Templeton makes this hilarious face, and he says he made another call? Like, it's just because, and of course, McNulty picks up on some of the, like, intricate details and says, you know, the number 12, the use of that, like, and you can see that Templeton, you know, it's, it's just, it's just everybody's now bullshitting everybody. And McNulty knows that Templeton's lying. lying. Mm -hmm. Templeton knows that McNulty's lying. Neither of them can say anything about it because they would have to admit their own falsehoods. Mm -hmm. So this fake news begins to feed itself, basically. Exactly. And it's interesting that, yeah, McNulty's, you know, overly sensationalized fake case is then picked up by this writer who wants or a journalist who wants to overly sensationalize fake cases so it's you know it's an interesting symbiotic equation yeah and so there's a another scene when june or sorry mike is in the car with snoop and chris partlow and they're going to kill junebug and mike asks why he's getting killed and snoop says well people said that he said marlo's a dick sucker and mike said well you don't know if he said it? And then Partlow says, it doesn't matter whether, whether he said it or not. People think he said it. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that kind of comments on fake news. It doesn't matter whether it's true or not. If people believe it, it has the effect of news. It's like, yeah. you know, whatever the agreed upon reality is, that is also the objective right. reality. Well, and as Marlo says, my name is my name. My name is my name, yeah. So... Let's talk about a couple other examples that comment on headlines because there's a few of them in season five. Um, when they're all sitting around the bar and they're talking about how the 22 dead bodies in the vacant houses mm. couldn't get any traction with the police department. Uh, I can't remember which police officer it is. It might have been Freeman. It says one white ex-cheerleader tourist missing in Aruba would do it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's definitely a reference to Natalie Holloway. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, who still is talked about to this day. Like, I mean, there's still news cases on Natalie Holloway. Yeah, so that case was very sensationalized. Very, yeah. yeah. And I guess that's what McNulty is looking for. And yeah. so he makes it up. And it's interesting, too, because you would think that 22 dead bodies and vacants would be significant news. Like, yeah. you know, that that is like, I mean, yeah, it's like a real thing that happened and it's it should be significant news, but I, maybe it's a commentary on how used to violence Baltimore is that, you know, McNulty to do this properly with the serial killer has to, you know, do the bracelet of red ribbon and the bite marks and the this and the that, you know, to make it even newsworthy. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Well, let's get back to thinking about season five in terms of current political and media climate. Okay. Scott Templeton and McNulty, they're both engaging in this fake news process to affect change at the institutional level which I think is exactly what was happening in the lead-up to and aftermath of the U.S. election. Right. And what I think is kind of, I guess, the irony is that in The Wire, all this fake news is publicly consumed and believed. Mm -hmm. And then now today we have real news, which is getting called fake news. Mm Mm-hmm. So that's a little bit of irony, but then also all this fake news that is believed to be real news. And yeah, I don't know. It's like, how do we, how do we trust? Why do we decide what we trust? Right. Well, and David Simon definitely has been commenting a lot on fake news on Twitter. Yeah. If anyone has been reading David Simon's tweets, he uh, just today retweeted something about uh, somebody said, oh, that's how you wage an information war is you reel in a gullible press and then you run um, a campaign of misinformation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he also references Newspeak, right? Yep. He says, uh, he says, freedom is going to equal death for a lot of poor people. Orwell is entirely validated. Newspeak is now our national language, Mm -hmm. which is a reference to 1984. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, what's unfortunate is that we have, well, we don't, we live in Canada, but the U.S. uh, has this independent media, which is supposed to be holding institutions to account. And for the most part, they do. But when there's this cry of fake news, that is kind of a catch-all for, um, you know, unvalidating or delegitimizing any kind of story when that happens, then the power to hold an institution to account is is kind of lost. And that's like the sad part of what is currently going on. Mm -hmm. So I think the power of literature is that it can hold institutions to account. And there are examples of this in the past. Right. So I guess Animal Farm, another George Orwell novel. Yeah, George Orwell was holding uh, capitalism to account through his allegorical animal farm another example would be the crucible which was arthur miller's play a comment on mccarthyism Hmm. through the allegory of the salem witch trials allegory very powerful very powerful yeah can you explain allegory to me allegory is a literary device which is like an extended metaphor that lasts for the duration of the text so the allegory of the crucible which was also a movie they made a movie out of it with winona Ryder, but It all takes place during the Salem witch trials, mass hysteria, not knowing who's guilty, who's innocent, rounding up everybody, a single accusation counts as evidence in and of itself. And while all of that was happening in the Salem witch trials, it was also happening at the time the play was written, which was the 1950s and the height of the Red Scare and McCarthyism. So, yeah, and then the allegory of Animal Farm is all these animals living on a farm and certain animals represent certain ideologies, like the pigs are capitalism. Interesting. Yeah. It's, well, and so I guess not allegorical examples of literature that have also done, I mean, all of Margaret Atwood's Oryx and Crake series, so there's three in that series now, but it's basically like, 
it's a dystopic future where there's become, you know, pigoons and the whole uh, society has fallen apart and people, like, there's these, like, perfect people that live down on the beach and they're adapted to these, like, hyper environmental conditions and that kind of thing but the the last like bits of I guess the quote-unquote regular people that happened before the fall um are still left and trying to survive and it's quite an quite an interesting analysis about what would happen if if it all fell apart yeah so kind of depressing to think about very depressing to think about um but this is the power of literature or things like the wire television movies uh, is that they can comment on uh, these changes that are happening in various institutions mm-hmm. and make their point. And I guess as we see more free news, when we're less and less inclined to pay for our news, um, perhaps that gives space for more fake news. This is the problem, yeah. With the internet, everyone is a self-publisher now. and. Yeah the ability to just build a site and make it look like a legitimate newspaper or news organization means that people need to be a lot more skeptical, critical of what they read, but also trust the institutions that we can trust. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So legitimate news organizations... You can trust those. As I said before, fact-checking is, is rigorous. Yeah. Is there a fact-checker? Like, if I, if Bailey Reed has a website, I don't have to fact-check anything. I can just put it up. Right. You know? But journalism ethics require that things are fact-checked. So CNN, BBC, CBC, mm-hmm. NBC, MSNBC, they even Fox News. Like, they will fact-check these are legitimate organizations. Mm-hmm. So what do we think of season five now that we can look at it as something that was maybe predictive or maybe commenting on circumstances that were escalating in the early 2000s? Yeah, I mean, I think I I go to that last episode, which is, of course, called 30, which is the traditional end of a press release. Yeah. And I mean, I wasn't disappointed in that episode. I, I did I felt like they wrapped things up well in that, you know, we see this evolution. So Michael becomes the new Omar and Hema has kind of become the new McNulty and Dookie is the new Bubbles. The new Bubbles. And, you know, I I feel like they did that evolution quite well. Uh, I mean, one sort of disappointing element, but of course it it speaks to, I think, what they were trying to do with season five is that uh, Templeton wins. Yeah, you know. Templeton ends up winning a Pulitzer Prize for his fake, fake news. news, you know, and and of course Alma and Gus are sort of demoted as a result. Yeah, and I think this goes back to the dystopian vision of mm-hmm. of this particular season. And then by contrast, McNulty for his fake news uh gets fired and police career over. Mhm. Um so and they do the funeral for him yeah and what's too bad about that is that i mean they were both engaging in fake news which i is wrong but mcnulty was doing it for the good of the institution Mm -hmm. and templeton was doing it to erode the institution for selfish reasons right eroding the integrity of journalism right and definitely a real commentary on the winner the outcomes yeah for sure so yeah, I guess I'm not I'm not so mad about season five anymore. <laughs> what about you? I'm not so mad about it, but I still think it was the worst season. Yeah. Do you? I do. Yeah. yeah. 
So we know that you all have opinions on season five and we would like to hear them. And if you have opinions on fake news, share those with us as well. Definitely. You can hit us up on Twitter at Rewired Podcast. Or you can email us podcast.rewired at gmail.com. And uh, you guys are awesome participating in our Twitter polls too. We hope you, Kima definitely won by a landslide of the favorite woman character of our poll uh, last week. Yeah, so it was not even close. Not even close. Um, anyway, so we'll, we'll think of another poll about season five and we, we look forward to hearing from you. Okay, see you next week. Way down in the hole. <laughs>